0: This episode of The Green Rush is brought to you by Heffernan Insurance Brokers. For a long time, cannabis companies have been shut out of many financial and insurance opportunities. That has now changed as cannabis companies have an option that can change their company's bottom line. Berkshire Hathaway is exclusively partnered with Heffernan Insurance Brokers, and the first work comp dividend program for businesses in the cannabis industry is now available nationwide. Rates that are filed in states across the U.S. can receive up to 40% of your premium back. So if you're an MSO that would like to have the potential to receive premium back on your work comp, give Kevin Tarango at Heffernan Insurance Brokers a ring at 415-699-2022 or go to heffcan.com. That's H-E-F-F-C-A-N-N.com. Support Heffernan Insurance Brokers' efforts to strengthen the cannabis community and revolutionize how cannabis companies buy work comp insurance.
1: This week, Nick and Phil Carlson speak with Bill Healy, co-founder of Silver Spike Capital, a specialty finance company formed to invest across the cannabis ecosystem through investments in the form of direct loans to cannabis companies. Bill joins our hosts to talk about all things in cannabis investing, including Silver Spike's philosophy, which isn't afraid of targeting brands or deploying capital in competitive markets like California. Bill also walks us through his thoughts on 280E versus safe banking reform, what the future holds for the Tier 1 and Tier 2 MSOs, and how he expects the industry to evolve over the next 10 to 12 months. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Bill Healy, co founder of Silver Spike Capital.
0: Bill Healy, co-founding partner at Silver Spike Capital. Thank you so much for joining uh Phil and I today on the Green Rush.
2: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, gentlemen. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Of course, of course. Yeah, we're excited about this conversation. But, you know, I think a, a great way to start would be, you know, introducing you to, to our listeners. Um, you know, and and what first got you personally interested in the in the cannabis industry?
2: Uh well my uh co-founding partner here at silver spike capital a gentleman that i was very dear friend and someone i worked with 30 years ago um in 2014 started started observing um that hey you know cannabis is starting to still go legal in california and opted to uh start thinking about making investments in it you know so i was you know on the periphery and um he actually ultimately decided to start a company out in california Called Papa and Barkley, where he's the uh, chairman of the board and one of the founding members, uh, investors, I should say, of the entity. And I was a family and friend investor, as uh, friends and family tend to do. So I sort of tangentially just got a view of sort of a bird's eye view, or yeah. you know, a seat by the front row, actually, on on how uh, a brand effectively from scratch gets built uh, in in a dynamic market like California. So that was. You know pretty early in the process and it was really through through that exposure that i became increasingly interested in the space that's
3: great so bell you know let's let's chat silver spike and, and, and where it sits in the cannabis space so just tell us a little bit about the company itself. And then, you know, I want to ask a few other follow-up questions here, uh, you know, why some operators would be looking at working with you guys versus some of your competitors. And we could talk about your competitors, but yeah, just let's start with a quick overview on, on the company and uh, where you fit in here.
2: Sure. Uh, Silver Spike Capital is roughly four years old. We're an SEC registered investment advisor. Um, We are credit guys. We really cut our teeth in private credit uh, in the mid 1980s in emerging market debt. So really all all the partners DNA uh, is through the whole capital stack of credit. Silver Spike Capital as a niche private credit manager is focused on cannabis. That's what we do. Uh, It's not a, a sidebar. It's not, you know, uh, um, an opportunistic um, investment uh, asset class for us. We're we're dedicated to the cannabis industry. So to that end, uh, what we do and what we're managing right now is uh, the first uh, public vehicle 40-act fund called the Business Development Corporation. Um, Some listeners may not be acutely aware of what that is, but effectively, think of it as a closed-end mutual fund. So we manage roughly almost $90 million of a publicly listed vehicle, Silver Spike Investment Corporation that trades on NASDAQ. So think of that effectively as fund one. Um, we've done some other things. We, we, when we first got started, we um, uh, were noteworthy. We actually um, were one of the very first IPOs on NASDAQ um, for our SPAC, um, noteworthy in the sense that it was uh, underwritten by a global investment bank, Credit Suisse, to a transaction that we later did um, with the Weed Maps, with the company with whom we merged, um, which was a, a $1.5 billion transaction. Um, but today, Silver Spike really remains focused on senior secured lending to cannabis operators uh, uh, throughout the United States. Uh, and we are in the process of uh, raising um, a second fund, uh, more of a traditional GPLP private fund, as we say, to co-invest alongside the investment activities of the BDC. So in a nutshell, that's that's kind of who we are. We're, 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 we really want to fill this void of uh, debt capital to, to an industry that has really no access to traditional sources of capital.
3: So you, you talk about the BDC and 40 Act Fund. Uh, you, can you expand upon like what it means to be a BDC and the, and the tax advantage that it affords silver spike?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, people are most listeners are probably familiar with REITs, um, you know, real estate investment trusts, effectively, um, uh, that are publicly traded. Uh And a BDC is like a REIT, but in the sense that it's not predicated on real estate as the primary source of of collateral. So what a a business development corporation is, just think of it as uh, a pool of cash um, um, that the SEC, you have to register with the SEC. That's why it's a tax advantage. And effectively what the BDC does is that... um, it lends to middle market uh, companies, um, primarily in the United States, that are public, excuse me, that are private, uh, middle market in nature. And that's what Congress did in 1980. They passed this law that effectively created a route or a vehicle for which you know capital could flow to middle market companies that otherwise don't have access to bank capital. So when we say it's tax advantaged, is what happens is the BDC is listed. Uh, they can be private, but ours is listed. And what they promise to do is as long as they dividend out 90% of their earnings, which effectively are recirculation of the interest payments and amortizations and things like that. Um, if, they, if they dividend out 90% of those profits each year, the BDC entity ha- pays no taxes. So therein lies the tax advantage uh, status of a business development corporation. For all intents and purposes, it's a it's a it's a corporation regulated by the Securities Exchange Commission. So it has all the the when I say it's a 40 Act fund, you should think of it really as of um, a, a fund effectively re- um, that has the registration with the SEC. And in our case, it's listed on NASDAQ. So for people that want access to it. They get access by buying or selling the shares of the BDC on the open market. So you can literally just go to your broker and ask them to buy or sell the listed BDC just as they would with a REIT. So that's kind of it. I think of it as a, I like to use the analogy, think of it as a closed end mutual fund, right? So closed end mutual fund at the end of the day, um, the way that you can get access to it uh, you simply have to go into the open market and buy shares in that in that uh, closed end mutual fund. It's the same thing for a BDC.
3: So it's like the investor, if they wanted to participate in, um, you know, some of the private deals that you guys are doing, their best bet is buying the stock in the open market, and you know they get the upswing that you guys see when, you know, when you guys are exiting your deals, correct?
2: Yeah, well, think of it this way. I, I would never say it's like the best thing to do, right? I, it's it's one option um, for any investor, but it 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 there well, put it this way. There there are very few or there are limited vehicles that are publicly traded that Joe or Jane Colorado can go out and buy and thereby get exposure to the private markets. But but I want to make a very important distinction. Uh, things like a REIT and a BDC by and large, think of them as current yield plays, right? So we're not in what we do is just think of if you're buying shares in a pool of cash, it's like a bank almost, right? Um, all we're doing is making loans when the loans get repaid, we make other loans, but we make interest on all of these things and other fees. So it's all of that income net of expenses that we're dividing out, right? So, um, So today, our our BDC is the only publicly listed vehicle that um, exists um, for credit. There there are a couple of um, there are a handful of publicly traded REITs, um, but there is a distinction between BDCs and and REITs. So um, I don't know if that 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 answers your question, but if that's the the way that um, the BDC works. Yep. No, that 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 was exactly what I was what I was looking for. Perfect. Just making a distinction, right? That people aren't buying. We're not. We're not looking for the next unicorn, right? We're not looking for a ten X, right. right? That, and we may talk about this in a moment. But that's sort uh, of, you know, perhaps one way to think about this podcast and what we're thinking about is that, you know, very very famous hedge fund manager once told me ninety percent ninety percent of a successful trade is getting the macro call right. The other ten percent is what he would call security selection. And that's kind of what we're talking about here, right? The the cannabis macro thesis. I think most people are kind of on board. Like the genie's not going back in the bottle. Mm-hmm. But then, what's the best right. way to allocate capital to it? And what we're saying at Silver Spike Capital, as today, it's in our humble opinion, it's not a venture fund. It's not an equity fund. It's 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 the 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 best risk adjusted return is lending senior secured, you know, well structured, obviously but senior secured credit to these, to these operators. And the BDC is a vehicle that does that.
3: So you said 90% macro. I like this. (laughs) 90% macro, 10% selection.
2: Security selection. Right.
3: Security selection. Right. How do you select the securities that you're going to lend to?
2: Yeah. So what, 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 what this guy meant by that was just think of the, um, the The right hand side of the liability, right? Do you want to go? You go all the way to the bottom? Do you want to buy credit uh, equity? Do you want to do subordinated debt? Do you want to do credit? So the point I was perhaps poorly making was that, in a nutshell, we think that being on top of the capital stack, as they like to say, is being a senior secured lender, uh, is the best is the best ecosystem to be. But I think your question is okay. Have with that with that in mind what kind of borrowers do we go look for? Was that right. the nature of your question? Yeah,
3: so, uh, that, great question. Because in this environment, I'm sure there's people probably banging down your door right now, <laughs> right? So uh, how do you figure yeah. out, like, who do you
2: pick and choose, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, you know, ultimately, that's what good lenders and underwriters do. Um, so one way that Silver we think Silver Spike is a bit unique is that as I mentioned before, our managing member uh, Scott Gordon um, mm-hmm. he kept his full time job as a president of a single family office and that invested in the emerging markets. But he was chairman, as I mentioned, and, and and lead investor in a in Papa and Barclay in California very early on in the stage. So we've and then because of our SPAC and because of our BDC our footprint in the industry is pretty big. So we're not waiting for brokers or bankers to call us. We effectively have a pretty good rap with, with, with the industry. So, uh, particularly in California. Um, so, which is our way that we sort of originate transactions. So we, what we like to do is we like, we like to sort to lend to someone that's sort of, we like to say vertically integrated, right? We don't Mm -hmm. necessarily like. On a standalone basis, the what we call the bookends of the business, you know, just someone that's a cultivation only or someone that, for example, just is on retail only. You know, ideally the value proposition is across the whole vertical chain, right? Grow, manufacturing, packaging, distribution, and then some um and then retail. So we we like to lend to 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 operators that are successful, because we're cash flow lenders and we're just simple cash flow lenders. And looking to collateralize our risk as much as we can. So, successful management teams running running um, cash flowing businesses, they have a real either brands or, or real market share in the businesses they're doing, and where there's real clarity and visibility into their operations, and they want to use our cash to to either grow or to 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 merge or to consolidate. Um, but there's a real functional use for that cash that gives us great comfort over the next four years um, that they're going to be able to meet their obligation and pay us back.
3: You so mentioned- I know Nick, is, Nick has a question here, but I like two <laughs> more. Sorry, Nick, <laughs> I, 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 I like this is great. And I know that our listeners definitely want to know stuff like this, like, so, how many current investments do you guys have out, and like, how much money do you guys have out in the in the industry right now?
2: Yeah, great question. So, our BDC, as I mentioned before, we did what was called a blind pool raise, I'm throwing all these terms at you guys. Sorry. Um, will talk. But effectively, tell us we, about the blind raise. Yeah, so that's just basically you go out to the market and say. Usually, the way that a BDC gets um, goes public is that you bring an existing loan portfolio and you you take that portfolio public right you can and people that are going to buy shares in this entity are going to say okay i can see the loans i can see what you're doing what we did at silver spike capitals that we just wanted to get to um we felt like the moment was was ripe to to get to, to have cash to deploy so we started we raised cash so we did an ipo that was effectively what's called a blind pool, right? We didn't have a loan portfolio. We just simply said, Hey, you know, we, we think we know what we're doing. Um, let us raise cash and we'll deploy it. So we raised almost $90 million of cash. And since then we, we kind of saw the market wobbling a bit last February when we did our IPO. So we only began deploying capital over the summer. So, you know, in life sometimes it's better to be lucky than smart. But, um, so we, we were lucky in the sense that the the move, the big move in the fallout both in the financial markets and the credit spread widening in cannabis had effectively taken place by the summer. So the loans we were making were at at, at, at higher rates um, with stronger covenant packages because the you know the 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 ball went to the side of the lender, became much more of a lender's market. So we to date we've deployed roughly Oh, somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of that capital and we've and it's just public information our bdc and and i and, and people can go to to the website of the of the bdc or silver spike capital and see the loans we've made but we've we've made roughly i think a half a dozen loans um very very deliberate you know very careful um and the first one we did was to shrine which many people may know, their label as Stizzy, as their brand, probably one of the largest uh, private uh, private operators in the industry. And That was a sizable transaction, 170 million, which we co-led, uh, but Silver Spike effectively, um, you know, it originated structured uh, that transaction. And we've done some other some other deals as well.
0: Uh, I want to go back to something we we were talking about um, actually even before we started recording with you, Bill, um, that that and I think the the Papa and Barclay connection connection kind of leans towards why you guys have a bias towards brand. But you also mentioned here that. You know, you're not afraid to deploy capital in California, whereas you know we've had other folks on here where you know they want to stay away from that market. It's a shit show. Like they don't want anything to do it. They'd rather go into limited license states or something else like that. Can you talk about you know that strategic approach as well?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And um, and 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 I didn't mean to just stop at uh, stop at disease. I just want to just back up and and the names oh, sure. to be to give perfect um, transparency. So, other names in our portfolio include Pharmacan, Ayr, Cureleaf, Verano, and uh, and Meramed, Um, Just to give your listeners a sense of the type of um, the type of business uh, or, or borrowers we're engaging with. Yeah, the point about so California. Quality. Yeah, that we, well, well, we certainly think so. And and again, um, look, I, I, we can't sugarcoat this. the the It's going to be a it's going to be an interesting. Um, 12 to 24 months to see you know as they like to say let's see who the good underwriters were and who the the perhaps not good underwriters were uh you know the the people extended a lot of credit early in the cycle so you know we'll see how things uh, things go but we we really believe and are very proud of both the quality of our portfolio and we also think that the terms that we are able to negotiate um, or probably, you know, well I will just say this they're they're quite favorable, right? So generally speaking, two times you know debt to EBITDA, roughly 30 percent loan to value, floating rate, sometimes there'll be some amortization in it um and with all the types of bells and whistles that you would imagine from a covenant you know covenant package when I mentioned those numbers to some traditional, uh, direct lenders uh who are doing stuff at 5 to 6 times debt to 60% loan to value covenant light as they like to say they're rather they're rather shocked uh at the you know generically at the types of terms we're able to um to get and in fact the CFO of Merrimad actually uh publicly stated i think in a in a in an article that was uh that came out that she was absolutely shocked at the terms that, you know, 25 years as a CFO, um, you know, she'd never sort of seen anything like that before, which is, you know, kind of a, a statement on, on, on how, you know, lender friendly the the moment is. Um, back to to California, uh, is a great point. Um, you know, everybody sort of looks at the opportunity differently and, and hopes to maybe uh monetize it differently. I think there are some that have are actually rather public in stating that. They would rather not lend to mm-hmm. to a state like California. In fact, that they would only um, extend credit uh, to what's called a limited license state. Um, so, well, you know, we, we're not so sure. Well, we would never make a blanket statement like that. Ultimately, every every borrower has its own, you know, unique unique circumstances. But what we do like about California is that it is the largest, most competitive market cannabis market in the world. And our view is if you can make it in California, you probably can make it, you know, anywhere, right? So these guys are in knife fights every day and a management team with an established brand, um, is, is, is that's doing well in that type of environment is, you know, someone we want to get to know. So we're, we're very open and actually in a way, right. Ultimately you think the migration of brands will slowly, will slowly make its way across the US, right? Because some of these brands can, um, have, uh, relationships in other states, right? And have royalty stream arrangements. Um, so, so in a way, like in all consumer products, ultimately brand becomes super important. Just to give you a perspective, I read somewhere that of, um, craft beer is 12% of, of, uh, of beer sales of all beer sales, but it's over 25% of profits. So clearly over time, I think many people recognize this that ultimately their consumers do like brands and are loyal ultimately to brands and will pay for brands. So, um, we actually like someone that's established a brand has shown to be astute at promoting their brand and can operate successfully in a market like California as someone, you know, we feel rather confident lending to under the right circumstances where, you know, limited license state right now, it's, it's, it may be fine, but uh, it is a limited license state. In some cases there's limited competition Mm -hmm. and perhaps the, the, perhaps the competitive dynamics are different there and harder to get your arms around than otherwise, than otherwise a, a more transparent and competitive market like California.
0: Yeah. And then think about when California brands can finally start entering into those limited markets. Or, you know, Gavin Newsom's pushing interstate commerce, you know, that big fish in a small pond doesn't doesn't look so good.
2: <laughs> yeah. And it, it, look, I, we were surprised. We were we were so pleased. Uh, certainly Scott was. Uh, we have so many calls when we were pitching our BDC on the IPO and, and speaking to a lot of uh, potential investors, institutional investors. And when they learned that Scott was the, you know, the former uh, chairman of the board and still board member of Papa Barkley, they would they say, oh, my God, hold on for a second. And they would disappear from the screen and then come back and hold up a Papa and Barkley, you know, pr- product. So, um, yeah, yeah, brands, brands ultimately will prevail. Um, and, um, yeah, I think that's a it's a compelling feature for someone with whom to whom you want to lend.
3: So, California brands are typically like the, the ones that everybody talks about. Can you outside of Stizzy and Papa and Barkley, you know, what what would you say are your two favorite brands in in the California market? If you can comment on that, if not, I totally get it, but I just want to throw it out there.
2: Yeah. I I mean, I don't want to get in trouble because I'll tell, I'll say two or three and forget, you know, two others. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, we're, 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 we're talking to them as well. Um, as you know, as potential borrowers. So um I think thematically I, I've tried to make my point about brands. I'm not sure I'm I'm the right guy to ask about you know which brands are my favorite. Gotcha. I am a big Papa so, Barkley. Well, I'm biased. So that said, you know, I am a <laughs> I, so for full full disclosure, I am a private investor in Papa and Barkley. So um your listeners should also, you know, know that up front.
3: Understood. Um, so you mentioned Verano, you mentioned Meramed and Air and Leaf, you know, very quality MSO. So, you know, in, in your opinion, what does the future outlook look like for these tier one and tier two MSOs? You know, would you say they're in a position to continue weathering the storm um, or do you anticipate we're due for more change and consolidation?
2: Well, perhaps you can tell me first what's your assumption underlying that question about federal legalization or or loosening up in the capital markets, because I, obviously I think those are important components of.
3: Well, let's show. just say in the current environment, because, mm-hmm. you know, okay. I if you had asked me eight years ago when we first got into this, when, you know, when do you think federal legalization is going to happen? I would have said five or six years from now. If you'd ask me today, I'd say five or six years from now. So it's, uh, I, let's go with current market environment and, you know, current dynamics, I guess.
2: So I think consolidation is going to clearly take place, number one. Uh, number two, I think there's going to be a real pullback in CapEx and in uh, on expenses and, and costs, I think. Think what Curaleaf did in, in the West Coast is a perfect example of them pulling back. Uh, Meramed, and I think they've been relatively public about this, you know, they're, whoever wants to come up with the tiering, um, maybe people consider them a second level tier, well-established, uh, very thoughtful team. Um, you know, I think they've let it be known that they think of this potentially as an opportunity um, to expand their footprint so i think you you'll definitely see you'll definitely see some type of consolidation in some of the players uh and i also think that some of it may be maybe forced upon them right because i think you're going to f- go through maybe the first lending cycle of where there was real bo- their borrowers i mean you know people know parallel for example is is, is widely known to to folks that that's a that's that's a problem a problem yep. situation so i i do think that that will that will also unfold, and and how that how that unfolds in terms of whether people come in and buy assets, and a lot of people are still wondering what will happen with the Columbia Care uh, transaction. So I, I think that's going to be. I think the next twelve months as a general. And I don't know if I'm adding any any real insight here, but I think the general view is that it's about you know batching the furniture you know, down real hard and, and watching costs, watching expenses and, um, keeping their market share. I think there's the dynamic around brands and wholesale. I mean, do there's a bit of a, a wholesale fight right now, or price fight right now between, um, AYR and Cureleaf in Florida, which is kind of amusing. I think, um, you know, one says a 55, 50% discount the next day, someone says 55% discount. So I think there's a dynamic about market share and profitability that will play out so i think it's going to be relatively tough times now it's also very hard to broad stroke everything right every state has its own dynamic in terms of the supply demand imbalance and the and, uh, new licenses that come are coming on board and and how the evolution of the market um you know um evolves so if i had to generalize or summarize it i think it's one of consolidation i think it's um and I think it's just people battling the, you know, the furniture down and just, you know, trying to watch their cost base. And uh, as they say, surviving to to fight another day.
0: One phrase that hasn't yet been used in this conversation is, is safe banking. Um, and, you know, we've had countless people on, on this podcast to talk about like safe banking is this magic wand that once it once or if it gets passed that it's going to be the thing that's going to help right the ship it's going to change the narrative for the industry and it's going to be you know the the savior i i guess to say um I, we've we've talked before your thinking runs counter to this can you kind of expand on, on where you sit on the safe banking conversation and you know if that does get passed does that you know really put the, the industry in a significantly better position
2: well look i think it's a two-part answer um I think it'd be hard to argue that in large part, some degree of cost of capital would come down, right? Because I just think the headlines to that extent may attract a bit more capital. But that having been said, you know, safe banking as originally, as originally constructed, didn't allow listing on um, on NASDAQ and NYSE for these, so the capital markets weren't magically going to be made available to the the multi state operators in the United States. Um, and and I and I just don't. I think there are two things. A sort of generically the cost of capital. I think is a general is a general sort of uh, discussion point. The second thing is the operating models for the players. I mean, I, I won't say I won't mention any names, but I was at a private lunch with a very well-respected uh CEO of one of the multi-state operators. And this was last fall. And uh there are about 15 other investors in the room with me. And there was a big discussion about safe banking. And I and I and I was trying to be a little provocative. And I said, you know, I just don't think it really matters if it passes. And I <laughs> I was almost thrown out of the room. Uh Uh, But I turned to the CEO and I mentioned to him, I said, look, you know, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but can you tell me that safe banking as it is today, if it were passed tomorrow, that it materially impacts your business model, right? Because it doesn't allow interstate commerce. It doesn't. And he conceded and he said, you know, not really. It doesn't really change my operating model. Now, some people, you know, opine that, um, the fact that people would be able to use credit cards, for example, you know, perhaps that could free up a little bit more spending or facilitate some more spending. But I, I would argue that's probably on the margin. Um, and I don't look. I don't mean to be Debbie Downer, or just w- what we do at Silver Spike Capital. It's not predicated on whether or not Safe Banking Act happens, right? We don't sit here and try to guess what Washington is going to do. So I think I think those are the I think again it it's probably a a good a good step forward it's hard to argue that'd be a bad thing but i think all we were trying to suggest on our part if people and we didn't we we don't like to opine we just like we don't we're not prognosticators i think there are a lot of other people uh, out there that that have their opinions and and are not shy about expressing them on on what's going to happen with 280 excuse me with um with safe banking but we just didn't we didn't spend a lot of time thinking about, thinking about it in terms of our model and, uh, yeah, long-winded, uh, answer to your question, but I, I, I hope that clarifies the way we thought about it.
3: Absolutely. And I, I love hearing that answer. Um, but you were, you had mentioned two eighty. <laughs> now say that goes away. What are your thoughts? You know, do we see something, that happens here with 280E? I like
2: Well, I, I would tell you just as a good old fashioned cash flow lender where cash is king, uh e would be dramatic right. from a cash flowing Right. I mean, I, that would be thirty to forty percent free cash flow for a lot of these guys, right? I guess just exactly and go straight to the bottom line. So you clearly, I've, I think most people actually, if you had one consensus, I think most would say the most pressing issue is probably two eighty for the cannabis industry. Um, and uh, yeah, so look, you know, we 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 think about that a lot, but again, um, you know. I want to, if I make any point really clear, the business we do at silver spike capital, the modeling that we, that we do the cash flowing modeling, the projections we work with management, um, we're not doing it, hoping that, you know, 280E, uh, is abolished or that say banking act happens or that we can get taken out by a capital markets deal in two or three years. These are all pressing and important issues. But again, that's why we think senior secured lending is so so interesting right now because we're not trying to pick the next sort of unicorn in the space. You know, we we don't really care, right? We just want to make sure that our borrowers can pay us back. That's what matters most, right? So, and when you're focused just on cash flow, um, it makes things a little easier rather than. I'll give you a really good example. One of our borrowers. This is actually a good example about, I think, the mindset of the market, where, w- which we think is probably a little bit too focused on the Wall Street equity analyst narrative, you know, looking for growth. Right. So we have a we have a borrower, one of our borrowers, and they've closed the books on December and they actually had, you know, fairly respectable, not big um, improvement in EBITDA from the previous year. Right. Not a lot, but like well within the confines of our modeling and expectations um, on Wall Street in that if, if they were being covered in the public markets, they would have gotten hammered. You know, the prices, the, the share price would have gotten hammered. Right. They're not growing, you know, and, and the EBITDA growth is not as expected. Um, you know, whereas from our perspective, it was an entirely impressive and successful performance. Given the, you know, given the backdrop on the industry. So those are two entirely different sort of perspectives, but important ones, you know, to make so circling back to your question about 280, um, I have no idea or on where that stands in the in the legislative um, discourse right now. Um, right. But it is a it is a pressing issue for the long term vibe, you know, cash flow viability of the industry.
3: So Let's have a look into your crystal ball then. If you were to look at the cannabis industry on January 1st, 2024, what do you believe will be the most significant development for the industry over the next 10 to 12 months?
2: I would say to my first point is just continued validation back to our 90% of a good trade is macro. So I would look to is is the KGAR of mid-teens still unfolding, right? Are people like my dear wife, you know finding different use cases? My wife will never smoke, but boy, she uses a THC gummy to go to sleep, right? Or someone told me the other day their 89 year old father-in-law is using a THC bomb for his back. So are we seeing are we still seeing the narrative of greater use case, taking place, right? 32 billion last year. Um, you know, is it on its way to what some people hope could be, I don't know, BDSA, I think, came out with a number, but is the general CAGR growth, so at the end of the decade, are we still on a path where cannabis, legal cannabis consumption could really be one of the largest consumer segments in the United States of America? So part one to your answer would be, is that narrative still unfolding? So I would look to that and then I would look for um, the states that are coming on board, right? How's the progress in New York, um, uh, which is challenging and how's New Jersey coming on board? So um, I would I would look to just that that taking place. I think the other things to sort of think about is um, just the cash flowing performance, you know, are 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 some of the supply and demand imbalances in some of the states in terms of pricing. Have they leveled off? Right, California. I think there's a general consensus that the bottom was hit last fall, in terms of uh, in terms of the uh, of uh, of pricing. So uh, less people were growing. So I think you, you, I would look to whether these supply and demand imbalances and pricing, you know, uh, pricing uh, competitions are are sort of leveling off. I think because I think that's the general expectation that this is going to be a year of where you know there's some shuffling around. Uh, in terms of market positioning for for the operators. um, And whether that's sort of reaching an equilibrium, that allows them people to, to continue to generate, you know, attractive EBITDA margins. So I would say that I would say the general narrative for one, uh, and then specific state by state, um, you know, situations and, um, and just the overall health of the balance sheets of many of the larger players brands too. I mean, you yeah. know we, we do we do think the evolution of brands is it's 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 still I mean Twitter right now Twitter's allowing for uh the um the marketing of cannabis oh, yeah. of advertising right? So um I I think little by little you you may see some really you know individual individual success stories by brands branching out uh in the country whether it's through um you know, arrangements, um, royalty arrangements and things like that. So, um, you know, look, it's a young industry still, still evolving. But um, I think I would think of oh, those yeah. as the uh, as some of the as some of the guideposts that um, that I would look for.
3: Yeah. Nick, definitely. I, know before you get to next, I was just going to say, Nick, you get to the next question. Are, are there any states in particular Bill, that you are looking at that are either have not legalized for medical or adult use that you are looking forward to, you know, to these States coming online in the coming
2: years. You know, candidly, it's, it's not so much trying to crystal ball who's coming on board. We're, we're, you know, we're just, we're just looking really focusing on, on cash flowing businesses that are looking for, you know, looking for capital. So, Where I think we would sort of look ahead a little bit or maybe how a state is unfolding because they're probably maybe they want to buy an asset in an existing, an existing state. But we're not really spending much time on trying to sort of see where the puck is going. Only to the extent of when we're, 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 we're modeling, you know, the projections with management working, we get really Pardon the pun, but we really get in the weeds with our with our borrowers. We really do. You know, this is what the five our five investment professionals have, on average, been in the industry for 28 years. You know, through special oh, wow. situations, distressed credit. I mean, Scott started his career at J, the J, one of the very first uh, emerging market traders on the J.P. Morgan desk in 1984. Right, so. There isn't really a cycle. You know, Scott and I were working together, running the sales and trading business at ING. You know, during the Mexican Tequila crisis. I mean, there really aren't circumstances that uh, we haven't seen. Scott ran the international distress desk at Bank of America. Um, so, so you know, we're, we're 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 pretty. We we like to think that we have a pretty good sense on 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 where things you know are going as it relates to working with a company on their projections, their modeling. And we want to work close with, uh, with, uh, we we want to be very respectful to the cannabis culture. We don't want to be seen like Mm -hmm. just wall street guys waltzing in. And I think that's, we want to be really constructive. We want to build relationships. We want to grow with our borrowers because we think it could be net net, you know, a very profitable and, and fulfilling relationship.
0: That's nice to hear. That's a, a kind of a breath of fresh air from, from I think, where the industry has, has been over the last couple of years. Um, but, you know, Bill, this has been really great. You know, we've had... Uh Really enjoyed this conversation. Um, we've got one more question for you, though, um, because you know we're we're storytellers at heart. We're PR people. We we love to you know think about like what's the next story or what's the story that's not being told enough. Um, and so I wanted to get your perspective on that. You know, is there a story that you think's gone flown under the radar within the cannabis industry that you know if you were to open up the the New York Times or the L.A. Times and see it on A one like that that um, under told story. You know, what would that topic be for you?
2: Well, I'm a little biased, so it may be a slightly boring uh, response. But I look at it from an investor perspective. You know, my my thirty, my career uh, spans <laughs> over thirty years—far too long. I, I I I love inefficient markets. You know that that that's where ultimately outsized gains are made. Rather than trying to pick the bottom and the top. Right, I like to be, and I think that's where Scott and I started our career, and it really, it really forms our thinking. In the mid '80s, emerging market debt was not the asset class that it is today. Right, so I remember calling up really large institutional investors and offering them Mexican sovereign debt as a trade, and they thought that was the stupidest thing they had ever heard. So, you know, not to pick on Pimco as an example, but they wouldn't touch Mexican sovereign debt at 1,200 basis points over but soon thereafter couldn't get enough at 300 over, right? So all throughout my career, whether it was in credit default swaps or emerging market debt or emerging market fixed income or blockchain, right? Usually what's really interesting is you want to navigate somewhere where you're at the nascency of an asset class, Mm -hmm. right? Before there's committed institutional capital, right? So that's where we are. What makes us so excited about cannabis credit that we want to demystify it or destigmatize the asset class a bit as it, you know, as it, as it grows. Cause I can tell you one thing, institutional capital will come without a doubt. It's just a matter of when. So that's our point is that we want to go out to the, insti- the best way that we think we can help the cannabis industry is by bridging it to the international capital or the capital markets, helping to bring institutional capital to this industry right then to really let it grow that's what we're trying to do and that's what makes us so excited is that look you just can't get 16 to 18 percent returns lending senior secured first lien at the type of rates we're doing so it's a maybe it's a one on on the wall street Mm -hmm. journal cover page rather than the new york times but i think those are the eyes that are opening that are going wow Right. Like we had a, a one billion dollar charitable trust just sign some documents with us to co-invest alongside Silver Spike. And it's going to be their first cannabis you know, credit trade. So to us, that's cool. You know, like we're boring guys, but that stuff is super exciting because I think that that's sort of like that inefficiency that exists today that I think is the story that we hope we'll, we can help unfold over the next 12, 18, 24 months.
0: Awesome. Love it. Bill Healy, co-founding partner at uh, Silver Spike Capital. Thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks, Bill. This is great. Thanks again to Bill Healy of Silver Spike Capital for joining Phil and I today. Make sure you check them out at www.silverspikecap.com. As always, thanks for listening to The Green Rush. If you want to chat with Phil and Lewis or myself, you can find us on Twitter at the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. Drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We love your feedback. We love your topic ideas. We love your guest ideas. Um, And don't don't forget to subscribe to The Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shane. One take.